Hello. Hi, John. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm good. You've got your room mic on. Oh, that always happens. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. That's a bummer. It's like a bummer. Usually, usually you fix it, though, when I mention it. Yeah. Oh, there you are. Nice that, and close. Is that, better? is that better? Yeah. Nice uh-huh. and close and soft and without any big ringing <laughs> echoes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, there, there it is. How are you, Dan? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I can't complain. Who'd listen, oh, as well, Merlin says, right? Who'd listen? Who would listen? Uh, uh, well, all of your podcast fans would. They'd have no choice. Well, They'd be forced into oh. it. It'd be, um, you know, it, they, well, they would, they would have to turn off the whole show. Yeah, they have a lot of options when it comes to podcast content. <laughs> That's right. Too many options. I liked it back in the day where 5x5 was the only network, really, that was worth listening to and hmm. had all of the shows that mattered. And it's not that there way anymore. There was a there was like a two or three day window where that was true. And it was the best Wouldn't, couple days of my professional career. It's so nice. You know, that uh, uh, that used to be also true of indie rock. There was a brief period there where, boy, Barsook Records was supplying a lot of really good indie rock to the world, yeah. and then a lot more indie rock came on the came on the market, and here we are. Here we are. I'm just living, uh, living here, living my best life, living in the suburbs now. Mm. I'm not sure if this is my best life, frankly. A lot of things, you know, you could have gone a lot of ways. Am I right? Uh, it still could, right? Still could, yeah. I watched Hamilton the other night. Oh, I still haven't I'd, seen that. Uh, I'd been one of the people um, that was like, yeah, okay, fine. And uh, I think I mentioned somewhere else that both Merlin and uh, Hodgman were real evangelists about it. Hodgman probably bought me the Hamilton soundtrack three times Merlin talked about it all the time. They both just, you know, I think John listened to it every day for a year. Mm. Uh, Paul and storm really, you know, Paul's always trying to get Lin-Manuel Miranda to be something. He's very close, I guess with the McElroy's or something. Okay. Uh, anyway, a lot of connections. He played my song, Lin-Manuel Miranda at a live McElroy's concert. He got up and played, the theme song to their show, which I wrote on the piano, which I was flattered by, but I finally watched it and uh, it's very good. It's extremely, extremely good. Very, very talented cast and mm-hmm. wonderful songs. Yeah. But there's a song in it, you know, kind of a reoccurring theme that in New York, you can do anything. And it's about, you know, being a young person and moving to New York and the world is your oyster. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a lot of regrets about not having spent more of my youth in New York. I'm not sure a lot of regrets is right, but I have, I have a, there's a family of regret that I have because I really like New York Mm. and in June or anytime, anytime. Okay. Uh, spent a lot of time there, but I, uh, I was that a musical theater reference? Uh, yes, I, I yes. didn't get it. That's oh, okay. yeah. 
I'm, and that's one thing I'm that I don't have very much interest in is musical theater, but mm-hmm. I do love New York. And, uh, and I've spent a lot of time there, but I, what I didn't do was move to New York in my early twenties and struggle and live in a cockroach infested flat with my seven roommates. And we all wore leg warmers <laughs> and were constantly at the studio working on our dance routines. And, you know, I didn't have that experience and I would have been suited for it in a way because I, because that's what I did in Seattle. Basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just in Seattle, the cockroaches are much, much smaller, hardly existent. Really. You only see them uh, every once in a blue moon and they're the little kind I haven't seen a cockroach in probably 15 years. Wow. Let's put it that I way. I haven't seen one in 15 minutes. Yeah. I, w- not, not I lived in an apartment. Literally <laughs> one here that I had to deal with. I lived in an apartment in the mid nineties that was close to downtown and not very well maintained. And there were roaches there and I was appalled. Mm-hmm. But other than that one time in the, in 1996, let's say, I have never had a roach in any of my domiciles, ever. I have ants and like little tiny sugar ants mm-hmm. that are a plague. And um, of course, at the farm, I had possums in the walls and raccoons oh, and right, rats. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Rats in the attic, which was a which was a bummer, and of course there are giant spiders, uh, half the year everywhere. Oh, but God. no roaches and no real no no rats like you see in New York where they're just pouring out of the <laughs> the gutter. But I, you know, and I to love be clear, New York, you don't you don't energy. mean the people in New York. You're talking about the actual no, I road. mean the, them too, them too, <laughs> all the rats of New York. <laughs> but so listening to this song. In the context of Hamilton, I, you know, I felt that melancholy of a life not led, the a melancholy of like, oh, right, there was a time when, and, you know, the time I should have moved to New York was at age 30, because I'd had my 10 years in Seattle, it had been amazing, but when I was 30, which was, you know, let's say 2000, mm-hmm. year 2000, um, Seattle had run its course, uh, it seemed like to yeah. me, right? I mean, um, most of my friends at 30 years old had decided that they couldn't just sit around in cafes all the time. They had to go get jobs and people were shacking up and it was becoming, you know, it was that that initial turn of the corner that a lot of people make where they're right. the ones that wanted to be serious about theater moved to LA or New York. Like the, the gang broke up a little bit and it wasn't clear to me that I had a future in music. It seemed unlikely. And I did move to New York. I went there. Right. My friend, Kristen, I'd had a bad breakup in Seattle and I was walking around town all the time you know, kind of both looking for her and also when I saw her drive by or walk past, you know, it, it 
broke my heart again. And so I was in this terrible kind of state where everywhere I looked, there was a reminder of this girl Mm. and I was just, you know, I just couldn't swallow kind of thing for weeks at a time. And, and then, and my friend Kristen, who was, who had moved to New York was like, just throw your stuff in a bag and come to New York. And it just made so much sense at the time. Mm -hmm. And I bought a Amtrak ticket for a hundred dollars. And you know, I'd already recorded the first Long Winter's record, but it hadn't come out. Mm-mm. And I got on the train, and the owner of Bar Souk, Josh Rosenfeld, was, I think, he, the record was mastered. I'd mastered the record with, uh, with the mastering engineer the day before. And it was being, I don't know what, uh, duplicated or something, put into a cassette tape that I could play. I forget what. Mm -hmm. But I was actually sitting on the train and Josh Rosenfeld came running down the the platform, (laughs) looking in the windows, you know, kind of jumping up to look in the windows of the train. And I saw him and I ran to to the, the, um, the platform between the cars and he handed me this this tape of my first album, basically the first long winners record. And he was like, here you go. Good luck. And I was like, thanks, Josh. The train started moving. It was pretty romantic, pretty nuts. And I listened to that record all the way across the country. But then I got there, I got to New York and Kristen met me at the station and we took a train up to Harlem where my friend Chris was living and I moved into his apartment and it was hot summer in New York. And I wrote pretty much half the songs of the second long winners record, pretend to fall. I wrote them that summer sitting in his living room. It was just a, it was a, a really like great time in my life. And I should have stuck it out. I think there's a part How of me that were you feels there like in, in total, I got there in, you know, first week of June, and I left September 1st, 2001. Mm. Um, or September, some first week of September, maybe the 7th, I forget what. But I, the day before I left, I went to the top of the World Trade Center and with my friend Chris and looked around and marveled at it, talked about the the earlier attempt to blow it up and talked about what it would take to blow it up. And wouldn't that be incredible if they had succeeded in blowing up the world trade center and it had fallen down? Like wouldn't that, and we were standing on the top of it, you know, looking out. And I, you know, when nine 11 happened, I was like, Oh man, I kind of wish I'd been there Mm. for all of the, for all of the trauma of it it sort of at the time felt like where I belonged going back to Seattle felt like going back. Like backwards, like taking a step back in time. Yeah. And I think that feeling persisted in me until maybe four years ago, three or four years ago was the first time I went to New York and on that first day walking around 
I, for the first time, had that feeling of like, oh, I don't want to live here. <laughs> like, I always wanted to live. Every time I went, I was just like, God, I fucking want to live here. Like, why am I not living here? Right. And it was the first time that I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have any interest in living here anymore. Because what I think what happened was my New York friends also graduated to a place where they no longer were doing anything interesting or exciting. They just had their routines. They went to the store. They went to their job. They went to the places that they went. They went to see shows sometimes, but not that often. They saw their own friends only irregularly. Basically, they were living in the greatest city in the world, but they actually were living in a basically a five-block area <laughs> where they had their routines. <laughs> right. And nobody was making plays. Nobody was coming up with cool stuff. It was just, you know, everybody had their stuff to do and they did their stuff basically. But also I just, I think I finally felt like, well, like I feel in Seattle now that when I go downtown, I go, Oh, this isn't my town. Seattle isn't my town anymore. Not even in the way it was four years ago. I go and I walk around and I go, yeah, I mean, I know every inch of this place. You can't point to a building in the city that I don't, have a memory of, you know, I did something there sometime in the last 30 years, but, but who cares, right? It's just like when I go back to Anchorage, same, I walk around and go, yeah, I know every street corner, but who cares? And what does it matter? Matter. Um, but that, you know, that, uh, that feeling of like, there's so many lives I could have led, so many lives that are being led right now. I don't know if we have any listeners in Istanbul, but there are people, there are millions and millions of people in Istanbul right now who are living lives mm -hmm. that I can kind of begin to comprehend. I know what it smells like in Istanbul. I know what the, the sun light is like certain times a year. I don't know. I, do, I honestly don't know what my neighbors are doing. I don't, I can't imagine what my next door neighbor here, what their lives are like, you know, like how it feels to be in their house. Right. The neighbor across the street uses one of those plug in air fresheners <laughs> makes everything in the house <laughs> smell like it's got like rancid oil on it. Oh, Every once in a while, they make us a batch of chocolate chip cookies or something, and the cookies smell and taste like their plug-in air freshener. Like we can, we when we get them, we're always like, "Oh, thanks, that was so thoughtful of you." But they're not, they're not edible. You have to plug your nose to eat them. So I don't know. I don't know what it's like to live in the next door neighbor's house. Right. But I could. But there's a version of me that has been living in Barcelona for the last, what, 12 years? Probably 12 years ago was when I was most likely to move to, say, 13 years ago, most likely to move to Berlin or Barcelona. And I've pictured the li those lives, what my apartment would have been like. Mm -hmm. You know, right now I'd be speaking German or Spanish pretty well, probably. 
and I'd have German and Spanish friends. I'd be their American friend. It might have even been better for my music career. That was popular in those countries. I'd have been the exotic foreign indie rocker that moved to... Very popular with your friends and, and, uh, and with ladies. Hmm. The ladies, but who knows, you know, I could have six kids, six kids living in Barcelona. Maybe I wouldn't have a cool apartment. Maybe I'd be living in some housing project. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe I'd be back in the United States and I'd have six kids living in Spain who, who didn't know me. Yeah. And all of this is possible, but that what I think, what I'm hearing you saying is that anything could have happened and that you don't, you don't know what could have happened. Well, that's the thing. Anything could have happened. I talked to you about my genealogy last week, didn't I? Yes. Yes. You discovered that you had some very important and influential ancestors that you did not know about. Yeah. And now having spent more time, you know, tweedling around in there, you realize that by the time you get back to 10 generations ago, you're talking about, you, you basically have a thousand ancestors. You know, it only takes, it only takes 10 generations to get to a thousand people. Is that right? How many ancestors at 10 generations? I ask the computer. It says one, <laughs> 1,024 ancestors. One, one in gen- each individual person, 10 generations, that is the number of ancestors you have. The potential for that, okay. yeah. Um, but it doesn't, you know, you don't have to go that far back to where you're, you're seeing in almost any family situations where cousins are marrying cousins mm-hmm. and often not, you know, often it's not like second cousins who knew each other, but you're just living in a small town and nobody is um, aware of the fact that your great, great, great grandparents are the same. <laughs> it doesn't come up in conversation. I think that's very true, and it doesn't take very many of those to shrink the number of ancestors because of this sort of exponential growth issue. If you share great-grandparents with your, um, with your spouse, that means you've, you've closed off one of those um, routes to having 1,000 ancestors. Right. But I'm interested in what happened 10 generations back Mm -hmm. because that was pretty fertile time and realizing as I, as I work that like, oh, there's so many people back here that discovering something interesting about one of them is like so, so disconnected really from like what at, at a, at the point that we're back 15 generations, we're basically all, all cousins. And if you go back 20 generations, we're there, there were only, um, 
11 D 12 people mm-hmm. <laughs> 20 generations ago. For sure. So we're, you know, we're, that's why everybody's related to Joan of Arc or whatever. Right. Genghis Khan. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooklinen. Brooklinen, you know, you make a small change and it turns into a lifestyle change. Okay. So let me give you some examples of that. Maybe you want to, your, your goal, let's say you're sleeping until 730 and you want to wake up at 630. You set your alarm for 630. You, you don't want to do that. Trust me. You want to gradually set it five minutes earlier every week, once a week. Move that five minutes earlier. All of a sudden, now you are waking up at 6.30. See, that's how it works. People who say, you know what? I feel like I'm eating um, I'm eating too much junk food. Instead of having popcorn at night when I watch TV, I'm going to have some carrot sticks and celery. It doesn't sound great, but you do it, and eventually you start to crave that. You know, Or you, you swap out uh, just some seltzer water instead of soda. Little changes that become habits, that became lifestyle changes. And, uh, and, and Brooklinen is one of those companies that can help you make little changes that will improve your overall quality of your life. And, uh, they have, you know, you've heard of the sheets. You've heard me talk about their sheets. I love their sheets. That's all I will use in the bed. And that's it. But they do a lot more right now. They do bedding, they do loungewear, and they do towels. And they've got over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. And uh, so this company is, has a very cool story. It was founded in uh, early 2014 by husband and wife who they were traveling around and they said, you know what? All these beautiful home essentials, these amazing like bedding and towels and other things that they would go and experience, they would say, we want these. And then they'd go and price them and they'd say, that's ridiculous. We can't afford that. That was the start of the company. That's the idea is that they want to give you these luxury items around bedding and self-care that are affordable. They don't have to cost an arm and a leg. That is their mission is to make us more comfortable. They work directly with the manufacturers. So they pass those savings on to us. There's no middlemen because they don't have stores. They don't have a big staff to run those operations. Just what they need to do is pass those things on to us. It's great. And they have, like I said, they move beyond the bedroom to offer bathroom and life essentials as well. These towels are super plush. They're really light. They are really awesome, but they've got shower curtains. They've got bath mats. They've got robes. They've got candles, like everything. That, they've even got these silk eye masks for like, you don't want to have the light shining at you in the morning. They've got robes. I mean, you name it, it becomes a little change that is a big upgrade to your life. So go check it out. They're so confident in all their products and their sheets comforters, loungewear, towels. They come with a lifetime warranty. So go on, make yourself comfortable and get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code just for this show, Roadwork, one word, Roadwork. And that's at brooklinen.com. I'll spell it for you, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com, promo code Roadwork. You're going to save 10% off your first order and get free shipping. And trust me, it really matters. The sheets they make are great. The towels they make are great. The other stuff they make are great. Go check it out. Do yourself a favor. Brooklinen.com. Promo code Roadwork. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. It says here that at 20 generations, uh, you have, you if cousins didn't marry cousins, you would have 1 million ancestors. 
20 generations ago. But of course, the, the, that's not true, right? We don't all have 1 million ancestors because that's insane, right? At 23 yeah. generations, you have 8 million ancestors. But they're just too, there was just too much, too many people, too many kissing cousins for that to be true. Sure. Anyway, like that genealogy stuff is really, it's really fascinating, but also the further back you go, like it gets more interesting, but it, or it gets differently interesting, but it also gets more and more just irrelevant to, it, 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 it doesn't answer any questions or solve any problems for you. In terms of like whether or not you should have moved to Berlin. Right. I think I'm wondering about it because I'm working on a house that I still have not moved into and still hope to move into. And because I have a child, you look into the future with a child in a different way than at least I ever did. Because I never looked that far into the future. I didn't make plans for my future, really. I didn't say, where am I going to be five years from today? I never thought that way. I woke up every morning without a plan. I didn't have a plan for tomorrow. If there was an appointment in my calendar that I knew was coming up, I just sort of dreaded it and dreaded it more and more the closer it got. But with a kid, you know, you can't help with a nine-year-old to think, well, in 10 years, she's going to be 19. 10 years doesn't seem that long. When I look back 10 years ago, this, like, Paul Reed Smith jacket I'm wearing right now, <laughs> I had this 10 years ago. I, I owned this microphone I'm talking into 10 years ago. So 10 years from now, my little darling who right now has to be nagged to do the dishes and likes to read comic books about star Wars is going to be, I don't know what riding around in a Camaro with some kid named Brad mm -hmm. on her way to college. If college even exists still needing to be nagged about the dishes. And so looking at this house that I'm working on and thinking about it, not in the terms that I would have thought about it in my 30s, which is, oh, I'm building this house that I'm going to live in maybe for 1,000 years. <laughs> and maybe in this house, everything that will ever happen to me happens. And maybe, you know, I thought that way about everything that I laid my hands on. I'd find a cool jacket and I would say, I'll wear this jacket until one day standing on the shores of the you know, of the Black Sea, I'll take this jacket off and hand it to my grandson and say, good luck climbing Mount Ararat. And my grandson will say something to me in, in Phoenician. And I'll, you know, like I just, my imagination was, uh, didn't have any boundaries. And now I'm like picking tile and thinking, well, you know, this house is, it's, it's already too late for this house to be the house she grew up in. This is the house that she's going to live in. Just as when I look at my own past and think like, 
well, that's the house I lived in until I was in fourth grade. And then that's the house I lived in from fourth grade to seventh grade. And then that's the house, you know, this, this house is going to fit into her life that way. One of the houses that she lived in, in her life. And then, you know, I'm kind of building this house with the idea of her being, she's going to move into it as a preteen. And this will be her, the house she lived in in her teenage years. And, you know, I remember the house I lived in in my teenage years. In some ways, it's the house I have the most affection for. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully I'm doing it, hopefully I'm going to do it right. But I don't have two kids. I have one kid. And when she turns 18, whatever she decides to do, whether it's move out or move into the basement or join the Air Force, I'm going to be in my early 60s. Yeah. Hopefully still fit. I can't really look much older than I look now, so I'll look the same. (laughs) You know, hopefully, hopefully in the next 10 years, I look less shabby, not more shabby. Do you think that's the trend, the current direction that you're heading in or? Well, I hope so. You know, when I look at the, when I look at 60 year olds that don't look shabby, you know, like you've got your David Burns that just look like they're carved out of ice or your Duff McKagan's who are carved out of oak. But I'm not carved out of anything. You know, I'm, I'm made out of scoops of stuff, right? You don't, you, you don't whittle me away from a, from a piece of driftwood. You put a bunch of scoops of things together and then, you know, basically like in the attic of a, of a synagogue in the, in Prague, you throw a bunch of mud into a pile animate me somehow to exact vengeance on the part of your people. That's me. (laughs) What I was saying, like, do you think the trend of toward going uh, to less shabby is a thing that's happening? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't get more shabby. I've been catching. I feel like you could. No, I've been catching glimpses of myself you know, one of the, I, I feel like, and this is hard for me to say, but I feel like the fact that the Boogaloos have co-opted the Aloha shirt as part of their Boogaloo culture. Okay, Boogaloo now, you need to teach me what that means because that sounds like it's Boogaloo is different from Juggalo. It is. Okay, help me out. There might be some overlap, but, uh, well, uh, so the and, derivation. And listen, of- listen, listen, I, Nobody can co-opt the Aloha shirt. Well, ag- agreed. Just agreed. like nobody can co-opt the, um, what's the flag? The, uh, was it the come and take it flag? What, the, the don't tread on me? Don't tread on me flag. Like, you can't, like, wasn't some political movement trying to use that and they people kept saying, well, they co-opted that. You, that, that has pre-existed for so long. And is still used with the original meaning that someone else can't come in and co-opt it and say, well, it means this now when there's still people using it to mean the first thing. 
And so I'm going to say the same thing for the Aloha shirt. I have a handful of those. I wore one the other day. And I don't know what a juggaloo has to do with that. And it's irrelevant to me. And if somebody's yeah. going to see me in one and assume that I'm a juggalo or whatever, the clown makeup, I'm not wearing clown makeup. No. And nobody's no, going to get me to wear that. Not even my kids. No, they won't. So what is a bugaloo? A boogaloo. Uh, well, so a... Um the name started on 4chan and you know, on 4chan there's just a lot of people just uh, used to be at least people trying to be funny, just like Twitter used to be, except on 4chan it was, it was quite a bit darker, uh, but also quite a bit. I mean, it was raunchy and rowdy and um, had, you know, it was a cesspool for sure, but it felt, again, like Twitter, like a new thing in the world, an anonymous place where people said and did whatever they wanted and there was no archive. That was the genius of 4chan, I think, was not only was it anonymous, but there was no archive. So you said something and no matter how bad it was or how how awful an image it struck, uh, it was gone by by that evening. And so the uh, the sort of ephemeralness of it, um, I don't know, it inspired a certain kind of culture that used to be interesting. It isn't anymore. It's been, because it's gone through, 4chan's probably gone through 10 generations of people, you know, of cultures that populated it. And the current generation is garbage and it's it'll be garbage forever now. It's not, there's no coming back to it. And of course, within the legend of 4chan, it's always been garbage. And that's true also. But at some point, somewhere back in the fairly recent history, people were making, you know, it's, it's long been a joke to, to say, um, break into electric boogaloo in refer to anything that has a second installment, you know, jaws Two. If you say Jaws 2 and you're a certain age, you almost can't help but say Electric Boogaloo because Electric Boogaloo was the second installment of the Breakin' film soundtrack or Breakin' film series. I think there were only two of them, but they were like breakdancing exploitation movies. Right. I, I remember being, you know, I'm a few years younger than you, but I was maybe like, what, 12 when the first Breakin' came out? Electric mm-hmm. Boogaloo, mm-hmm. a song. I loved the album. Loved mm-hmm. it. Loved the cassette mm-hmm. tape. That in my Sony Walkman, I was set for a few hours right there. My Dungeons the Electric and Dragons Boogaloo. Book. The song, the whole the whole album was great. Yeah. Well, see, there it is. Um, and so that joke, at some point, somebody said, you know, some survivalist or some young kid that liked guns said something about civil the Second Civil War. And said, it's going to be Civil War II, Electric Boogaloo. And then that took on a life of its own, Civil War II, Electric Boogaloo. And then all of the people that are hoping that there's going to be a Civil War, and there are a lot of them, began to use Boogaloo as a shorthand for the culture that surrounds people who are kind of, you know, preparing for slash hoping for Mm -hmm. 
uh, society-ending, palate-cleansing civil war. And then at some point, very recently, I think those people started to be called boogaloos. Okay. In the in the way that the argot changes reality, not related to juggalos at all. Although I'm sure there are some. There's a small set of juggalos who are also boogaloos. Okay. <laughs> they haven't yet stood up and waved a flag or anything. But like the boogaloo, the the, the idea of, of a, an imminent civil war, one that we have to prepare for, that really overlaps with a lot of subcultures. The disaster preparedness people, the gun nut people, the um, everyday carry people. I mean, the whole concept of everyday carry is rooted in the idea that things could go wrong at any moment and you'd better have a knife, a flashlight, um, some band-aids, a fishing wire, a shortwave radio. You know, Roderick on the line used to have a whole gag about my the fact that I keep a small bag packed. Mm-hmm. The idea being that I'm always ready. Ready at any moment. Drop of a hat, boom, out the door. Out the door, and and in in a lot of ways, it's just psychologically ready to have everything taken away. And it's something fundamental to me that everything I have, I feel like is a gift for now. But if you told me, you know, if somebody walked in the door right now and said, you got to get off the phone with Dan, follow me. And I got up and I followed this person. And they said, you know, get in the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. And I never, ever, ever came back here and ever saw any of this stuff again and never, ever saw my friends or family again mm-hmm. and just went into the went into the forest or went out to sea. At, at some level, I'm psychologically prepared for that to happen. And it's not to say I wouldn't be devastated at the loss. But it's related to not – it's related to wanting to not be dependent on anything to such a degree that I'm always prepared to lose everything. And that's a – you know, that's a keep a small bag bag packed. It's an everyday carry thing. It's a – it's – you know, it bleeds into all this stuff this other world but the boogaloos it seems like at least the ones that get a lot of press tend to be people that um that's that are play acting as though a civil war is going to be fun you know they've got they've spent some money on some rifles and some knives They've got their flashlight and their compass and their wraparound sunglasses <laughs> and some tactical webbing. And what they really wish they had is some grenades, but they don't have a class A license and so they don't have grenades or maybe they do. And they're they're wherever they are. And there are a lot of these people and they're not all young white kids, but 
like the the American West is full of people that have bunkers and um and caches of weapons and food and they're dreaming of a time when the thing is I don't think you can spend that much time preparing for a disaster without beginning to hope for the disaster nobody stockpiles that much shit and continues to really in their heart of hearts, hope they never have to use it. I think that they say that. Yeah. But if you've spent that much energy preparing for something, you hope it happens. Even you don't though think, you know though, it's going to be terrible. You don't think that, that there's a, a segment of that population, whether you call them preppers or whatever, who's saying, I really hope we never have to use this. But if we do, then I'll be ready for it. I mean, I think that's how a lot of gun owners, maybe the responsible ones might feel like I have this for protection and my hope is I never use it. Yeah. I think but I want to know how I to think use that it. That is, I think it's probably true of a lot of people that they genuinely hope to never have to use it, but they're, they're doing that preparation because they think it is plausible. And if they think it's plausible they probably i don't know where the the line is um for a lot of people where something goes from being plausible to being probable and you know for me until very recently i felt that a lot of that stuff was plausible but it re- it would require a, um, it would require such a dramatic inciting event that it was, it was highly unlikely, right? I don't have a stockpile of guns. I keep food around because I, because I recognize how fragile the supply chain is, but I feel like the supply chain is fragile in that it's capable of having 10 day interruptions or 15 day interruptions, but at the absolute maximum, I don't, I think it's extremely, extremely unlikely that the supply chain would be interrupted to the degree that that people would starve unless there was an inciting event like a, like, I don't know what, I mean, even if, uh, even if a nuclear bomb went off at Boeing field within 15 days, uh, the, you know, the region would be flooded with aid and, and help and things, you know, systems would be in the process of beginning to be restored. It would be awful. It's, but, but it's like when a hurricane hits Florida, sometimes it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to get everything working again. But by the following year, it's all it's all up and running. It doesn't even take that long. But these days, I think I think I've just uh, just recently started to feel like, oh right, there's a there are more people alive now who have absolutely zero conception of what it would be like to live through a war, even a war that was happening elsewhere. 
to live through a war where we were the home front. You know, and I'm talking about not a not these wars of adventure that we're having in Afghanistan, but like a all-consuming war. But we're generations from the last person that knew what it was like to have a to live in a war, unless we're talking about people who've emigrated here, who survived wars. But you know, my dad fought in World War II. My mom was a teenager during the war, or a, you know kid my daughter's age and so what do i have i have i have that kind of proximity to war but i don't but you know neither of them saw any atrocities you know my mom collected cans for the war effort and they didn't have real coffee but i i feel like the the majority of people now in america don't know what it's like really to want for anything right there's you know there is a um there's a percentage of people in this country who are truly needy who you know are truly going without nutrition but the vast majority of people in this country don't really know what it's like to want. They desire, but they are not, um, they're not suffering from deprivation. Right. And so you have this, you have this enormous population that can't conceive of what it's like to be really fucked. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this talk about violence now as though it's um, necessary and inevitable. But I don't think anybody's run the numbers on what that would mean for them personally if the country came came apart in a violent way. And if it came apart, it would be in a violent way. But all of a sudden, the idea that that was implausible is starting to go away for me. I'm starting to feel like, oh, it's it it happens all the time. This crazy love of mine. <laughs> one thing, one thing that reading history teaches you is that it doesn't take long. Stable societies come apart. Um, Thousand-year reichs last uh, 25 years or whatever, 30 years. Not every Roman Empire anymore lasts a thousand years. The, The number of years that empires last seems to get shorter and shorter. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean for me? Like, what do I, what's my plan? And, um, knowing, I guess that I feel like I have at least some, I've put some thought into how miserable it would be 
I, I look at, and, and some of that is that I'm 50 and not 25, but I look at the 25-year-olds, the, the, the boogaloos, and I feel like what they think they're doing is fun. What they're looking forward to is going to be fun. The revolution. Um, the disintegration. And I think boogaloos are not about revolution. I think they're about surviving an apocalypse. There are a lot of other people who are about a revolution, who think that what we have is so bad that to rip it asunder and to live, um, to live for 20 years in a period where millions die is necessary to right some injustices. Um, and they and the boogaloos are birds of a feather. They just don't, they just don't know it, Mm -hmm. you know, or they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge it. But Dan, the Boogaloos wear Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. So, what's that all about? And they all just of them are do doing this it. Is like a uni- it's like a uniform. No, it's becoming one. They, uh, they, because of some, so people started recognizing that Boogaloo was code for this, and so they started to try and mask it by. By um, by using homonyms like Big Luau instead of Boogaloo when they discussed their movement online, and then Big Luau turned into I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt because I'm ready for the Big Luau, mm-hmm. and then you're talking about a bunch of 25 year old white dudes, so Hawaiian shirts kind of were already having a little bit of a hipster resurgence. But Hawaiian shirts are easy for guys who don't have any fashion to wear something that's that's loud without being feminine. You know, right. or it's like it's like fun without being fruity. For for people who don't know how to be stylish. And it's the it's the reason Hawaiian shirts are popular with middle-aged white dudes. And I've acknowledged that from the very beginning. Like, I like a certain kind of Hawaiian shirt. They are exciting to me, and I like to search for them and collect them. And I do not, you know, I abhor 90% of all Aloha shirts because I don't like them. But I do like this certain little segment of them that remind me of my childhood. And as I've collected them, I've caught my reflection in the mirror many, many times and gone, oh, this shirt says all these things to you. But to the world, you are indistinguishable from every other fat boomer in a Hawaiian shirt who's working on his <laughs> his GTO in his driveway. You know, they're, the, the Hawaiian shirt and the gray beard and the big white dude – with the pot belly, it's just, it's a form of invisibility. It's a, it's a, it's a Jimmy Buffett. Right. Pan man state of just sort of, I don't, I've given up. I don't care anymore. Like I quit my job at general electric and now I get to wear Hawaiian shirts every day and they're loud and fun. They're like socks that say, fuck you. Uh-huh. But at the same time, like 
I don't have to worry about color coordinating it with anything. And I don't have to worry about looking like I'm a girl or like I care. It's the, I don't care. And so for, for me, like the amount that I care about this Aloha shirt versus that one is almost, it's almost like an, uh, like an irony that I look with it on just like all these other people that don't care about anything. Right. But I do feel like this is a gift that the Boogaloos have given me. Because although I agree with you 100%, the Boogaloos cannot steal Aloha shirts. They have no right. They don't have that power. They're not. That's the thing. You're, you, they're not, you would have to give them that power for them to be able to do that. And they're not big enough. They, and they won't last long enough. Um, okay. That, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Did hipsters co-opt and steal the fedora? from whom the thing is nobody was guarding the fedora no one was guarding it but from the people who enjoyed wearing them and were not hipsters well and also not not over age 70 long before hipsters stole fedoras it was cigar smokers who stole fedoras Mm -hmm. you know it was it was assistant district attorneys who enjoy a good cuban cigar Mm -hmm. who stole fedoras from history uh 20 years ago (laughs) okay and then you know they lived in a world where fedoras belonged only to them Mm -hmm. right that they could wear their fedora and their ankle length black trench coats and drink single malt scotch and smoke cigars and no one wanted anything to do with them you know that was their private universe And then hipsters started with the Trilby hat because there was that generation of hipsters that came out of um, Justin Timberlake that believed Justin Timberlake and Michael Buble and whatever else that believed that they had somehow um, that they equaled Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack levels of cool because they wore skinny ties and trilby hats. And that, that this was, what was this, 20 years ago, t- t- 15 years ago, where all of a sudden you've got, you know, Michael Buble with his jacket over his, slung over his shoulder and a little pork pie hat going like, shoo-ba-doo-doo-ba-doo. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who that fooled. It fooled people younger than me, I think. But it, you know, it looked like the, it was like a kind of hot topic cool. But then as those people got older and we went through that phase, which I think of as being 10 years ago, where there was a recognition that heritage brands made in America things um, were worth the money, preferable to, cheaply made throwaway um, world trade organization clothes and garbage. When people started buying red wings again, because they realized, Oh, I could wear a pair of red wings for 40 years and just get them resold. And if I buy a pair of Timberlands and they blow out in two years, I just buy another pair of Timberlands. But 
you know, you buy a pair of Red Wings or you buy a Filson bag or whatever. And I was, I was along for that ride for a while because I came out of the vintage side of it, which is like, hey, I'll tell you what, I buy a pair of Red Wings from the 60s and they're still great. Presumably that means you could buy a new pair and they're still great. But that era of like heritage brands, which I think we're still in, the mustache wax generation, Mm -hmm. then the recognition that things like Stetson's, you know, were still being made in America and still were things of beauty that conveyed a, um, conveyed a kind of constellation of taste and class and, you know, they're expensive. So it, it was money, but they're not so expensive that it was crazy money. That's when the fedoras and the, and the Hombergs and the, and uh, the, the hats, I think came back into the world as a hipster and by hipster, we're not talking about hipster. Like I knew like 2002 hipster Mm -hmm. or 1992 hipster. We're talking about 2012 hipster, which is a different unrecognizable kind of hipster. But that's where those hats still live. I think their finest iteration is the, um, the high desert hipster, the turquoise jewelry wearing 10 gallon hat, um, sun baked Yucca Valley hipster, Taos hipster. They're the ones that wear those hats. And I think there, you have those in Texas too, where they wear them and they really do feel like an honest new expression of, like basically a Tom Mix hat on top of a like sun weathered uh, gal with bl- her blonde hair in a loose braid, right, right, and she's being followed around her her artist's compound by like four mangy dogs, and she's working on a sculpture that she's welding out of her mom's Volkswagen Squareback. You know that look. Hey, I'm all in mm-hmm. on it. It's way better than fedora, black trench coat, Cuban cigar, um, Nat Sherman world, I think. Because it's sort of not true. It's like all good fashion evolutions. You can't quite put your finger on all the references. Like the trench coat fedora cigar people it's a straight reference. They're trying to connect to forties men's club, um, Indiana Jones in town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The 10 gallon hat people, I just feel like they're, it's just slightly more inventive because it's like sunset magazine, rich housewife meets tat, welder artist meets Palm Springs refugee 
Coachella like but a little bit of old Mexico. I don't know, it's it's annoying as fuck, I'll tell you, when you see it in Portland because it doesn't belong. It's not native to Portland. Right, and you do see right. it there. You see it here. So let me let me ask you this. Let's let's say I'm I'm kind of a let's say I'm a legit long, you know, multi-generations of my family in Texas and we own a cattle ranch and a cowboy hat for me is the thing that I put on in the morning to go and do my work. And yeah. I wear the hat as a matter of practicality and doing my, my job and my life and the culture that surrounds me and my dad yeah, and my brothers and my uncles all wear cowboy hats. And so do the women in my family, all of them, whenever we're out working and doing things. And the cowboy hat for me is considered a business hat and I wear a bolo tie and cowboy boots are standard issue for me. And I put this on and I go and visit you in Portland. For me, right. taking swapping out to the cowboy boots for New Balances and not wearing the cowboy hat would be as wrong for me as it would be for you to show up in Texas and uh, you know in the Dallas airport buying a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and then walking amongst your you know your Texan new Texan neighbors and saying I'm a Texan now. I mean, at some point. You know, there and that, and that's the thing. I have, you know, if you live in Texas long enough, you wind up buying a cowboy hat, or at the very least, a Western style hat of some kind. You wind up with cowboy yeah. boots eventually, even if you don't ride horses. And yeah. you can wear any of these things uh, as often as you want, and nobody really thinks anything of it. In Austin, you don't see a lot of cowboy hats, but you see them. Right. You see them, and and I as a test. As a test, I wore a cowboy hat and boots around just to see if anyone would comment on it or say anything about it or even really bat an eye at it uh, or make a joke or anything. And no one did. I got the same reaction as if I was wearing no hat or wearing a baseball cap. It made no difference. No one cared. But if I did that in where I lived previously in North Carolina or in Florida or certainly in Philadelphia... It would get a lot of looks and I bet people would refer to me as that cowboy or Tex. Mm -hmm. But here, no one does that. Even though Austin, in Texas, Austin is the least that kind of Texas of the places that I visited in Texas. Mm -hmm. It's still no one thinks anything about it. Well, what you're talking about is code switching. Yeah. You know, there have always been people in texas that wear boots and cowboy hats who then have to go to town to do business and the degree to which your the clothes that you wear in your native environment um are the only clothes that you can conceive of is the degree to which you look like a a hayseed when you go to town right and the same is true if you are like a portland emo rocker and the only clothes you know are t-shirts that are two sizes too small and stay pressed jeans um if you can't if you wear that to a wedding or you wear that to a you know to a, a meeting you're gonna look like somebody that doesn't know what they're doing mm-hmm. and there's a 
There's a version of Texas which has always worn expensive cowboy boots with a suit. George W. Bush tried to do that in the White House. And that has always been a very self-conscious um, badge uh, indicating that we do things differently in Texas. Yes, the same way that I have learned, I've not been to Hawaii, maybe you can corroborate or dispute, but I, I my understanding is that a nice Aloha shirt there is considered or could be considered formal wear in an evening. Yeah, absolutely. Could, so I think here in Texas, I can tell you that the bola tie is uh, 100% considered to be a tie. Um, and in Anchorage. Or at oh, least in old Anchorage. Interesting. So yeah. it's very, very much here as well. And um, and and the a cowboy hat and cowboy boots are also considered. If if you you know wearing for people who wear cowboy boots, they are absolutely considered dress shoes. Um, and sure. in fact, when I go to a wedding or something that requires, I don't know if we're going to have weddings ever again. But if I go to a formal event, the most formal shoes that I have are actually a really nice pair of cowboy boots that I have. Right. And that's just a question of, it's like a question of whether or not you're in a situation where you want your fashion to communicate to other people uh, more about you than about the than about acknowledging the situation. If you're somebody that's like, I only wear cowboy boots, then mm -hmm. that says something about you. Right. And if you go into a meeting in New York City where everybody else in there is wearing wingtips right. and you're in cowboy boots. You're making well, a, yeah, a big you're, statement. You're making something you're making a statement about yourself. Now often clothes and style are ways of saying not just are you there dan i am here oh it, the skype made that same sound that it made last time when you when you <laughs> when i lost you bagged off yeah <laughs> you just went you just i'm gonna uh, leave this in so people understand that the drama you just went away and and um yeah yeah it was it made some submarine sound bing boop, beep, <laughs> some kind of weird skype sound oh man anyway you know it, sometimes it would be completely inauthentic for someone from texas to go buy a pair of wingtips just to go to a meeting right but at the same time there are you know there are things in fashion that are bigger than both things that are there to uh, show respect for the thing, right? Like if you go to, um, if you go to the Kentucky Derby uh -huh. or if you go to a wedding, for instance, or you go, if the president is giving you, uh, the medal of freedom, you know, there are, there are things that the event suggests and you can absolutely wear cowboy boots with a tuxedo. If you're that kind of fun, old fun Texan, mm -hmm. but a tuxedo is a thing that is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than, you know, it's not, you're not pretending to be somebody you're not if you wear a tuxedo. And if you wear a tuxedo, you should have shoes that go with it. 
Now, if you're from Texas, I know the rules don't apply. <laughs> well, and they do. They're just Ho- different, different rules, different rules. Well, yeah, but uh, but tuxedo doesn't go with cowboy boots. Right. I and agree with so that. And I, I still think in Texas, if you did that, that would you would have to do something different. I don't I don't think that's yeah. a cowboy boot thing. Yeah, right. You'd look like a you'd look like a hick. You'd look the thing is um, the thing is I think I think you would look foolish if you did that. But I don't think it looks foolish to have a, a nice pair of like Lucchese cowboy boots with uh with a with a with a suit. I think that's fine. Agreed. Um if you went to Portland and you got off the plane and had your Lucchese boots on mm-hmm. and your Wranglers and a belt buckle that you want at the state fair and a, and a shirt with, um, with mother of pearl snaps. Mm-hmm. If you then also put on a cowboy hat, uh-huh. that's the point at which you are way, you're basically like, wearing a tiara mm-hmm. right if you're cowboy your luchesis and your boots and even the belt buckle if that's what you use to hold up your pants and the shirt it's a work hat as you say right and if that's your fancy hat too if you've got if you brought a fancy hat you know you look around and nobody else has got a fancy hat on leave it in the hotel room that's just my hot take <laughs> 